This is episode 75 of Cinescope. And where's my super suit? Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Amanda Filangieri to talk about one of our favorite films, The Incredibles. Amanda, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Chad. A huge thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk some Disney with you. Yeah, uh it's funny, you and I have talked and sort of podcasted before, but it wasn't for this podcast. It was back when we were both on Anchor and you were running your own Anchor station and I was running my Anchor station. And yep. uh, we since departed that, but we had a really great conversation on the live action Beauty and the Beast last year. We did. I mean, that was one of certainly one of the highlights of, you know, the recent Disney films, especially live actions that have been out. So it was really fun to chat with you about that. And I'm excited to poke around here at another one of our favorites. Yeah. How about you introduce yourself, tell people out there who you are, what you do, all that kind of good stuff. Sounds good. Hello, everyone out there in the Cinescope universe. Um, my name is Amanda, as Chad mentioned, and um, by day, I am a marketing manager. So, you know, all things marketing and promotion and advertising. But outside of work, I am a huge Disney buff, which is why we picked this movie and um, live in California. So lots of um, outdoor exploring when I get the chance and getting into mountain biking and golf. So that's kind of uh, some new some new things on the radar for me and um, just excited to talk movies and, and TV and, and media any chance I can get. So this is great. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem at all. And I'm excited to talk about The Incredibles. You mentioned it because, well, we've got a new one coming out this year, which is crazy to think about 14 years later, uh, yes. but it's definitely exciting. Definitely. I'm, I'm super stoked. I mean, whenever the sequels come out, especially the Pixar ones, they have these huge gaps in between. And so I feel like it just, you know, never loses its hype. It just keeps getting more exciting and more exciting as we approach the sequel date. And, you know, coming in the summer, we have The Incredibles 2. So I felt like this was a, a perfect one for us to talk about and, and reminisce about. For sure. So let's go ahead and dive into it. This is The Incredibles. It was released on November 5th of 2004. It was directed by one of my favorites, Brad Bird, who also directed The Iron Giant, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Tomorrowland, and is set to return to direct and write Incredibles 2. Good. <laughs> uh, the music is by Michael Giacchino, another one of my favorites who, take a big breath, it's a long list, also composed <laughs> Mission Impossible 3, Ratatouille, Star Trek. Cars 2, Up, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, John Carter, Star Trek Into Darkness, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Inside Out, Star Trek Beyond, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Spider-Man Homecoming, War of the Planet of the Apes, Coco, and is also set to return for The Incredibles 2. Is that it? <laughs> that's a truncated list, even. I, that's what I thought. <laughs> so he is absolute madman working hard all the time and always putting out great stuff. And this was sort of his, not his debut. He'd been composed, composing for like video games before this, uh, like the Medal of Honor series he was known for. But this was the film score that really sort of jump-started his career. And he's since returned to Pixar many times and Disney many times. And he is very successful and very talented. 
Yeah, very thankful he came on board to the Disney family for sure. The movie stars Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Sarah Vowell, Spencer Fox, Jason Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, Elizabeth Pena, Brad Bird, Wallace Shawn, John Ratzenberger, and Lou Romano. Yep, definitely, uh, you know, a star-studded cast, I feel like, but nobody who, at the time that I was super familiar with, so it kind of made, I feel like it made the characters in a way more unique and more special because I just associated them with their characters from this movie, so it was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, this probably would have been my earliest exposure to Samuel L. Jackson, to be honest, as a little 12-year-old when this first released, and we'll talk about this in a second. I I wasn't even, I didn't even see it in theaters, Um, but it, it... it's funny how we do associate like specifically him with this movie and Craig T. Nelson. Honestly, I haven't really seen him in anything else. I know he's in Poltergeist, but that's uh, frankly a blind spot. Wallace Shawn, uh, he is very well known in Disney. And so I guess I was familiar with (laughs) him ahead of time. Goofy movie. He was the principal as Principal Mazur, I think his name is. Yes, that's right. He was in The Princess Bride, which I, I hadn't even seen that at this point either. Uh, oh yeah, but, me, me neither. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a largely unknown cast, at least in regards to children and who they're familiar with. I think. Mm-hmm, totally agree. And I know, and you know, in talking about some of the cool things about this movie and kind of laying the groundwork here, I was researching and looking at some stuff, and I found out that for Pixar, this was a first for them in a couple of ways. The first one being that it was the first of their films to have a PG rating. So that was kind of, you know, a little risque for them at the time. It was their very first one. And in terms of the length, the length of their movies, this was also the longest one, I think by by kind of a long shot, like almost half an hour. So they were um they were really pushing it with this one, but I guess it turned out well. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that this was the first one to bring in somebody sort of from the outside. Uh Brad Bird and I think John Lasseter had gone to school together back in the 70s, but uh, but Bird wasn't part of the Pixar brain trust, as they sort of call themselves. And so they produced the first two Toy Story films and Monsters, Inc. and A Bug's Life. And it had all been in-house. And now they've brought in somebody exterior and mm-hmm. they handed over the reins, essentially. This was a solo effort as far as writing and directing goes on Bird's part. And that's just so different from what Pixar had been associated with. They were very much a group team effort. Not to say that Brad didn't work with a team here, but he was very much in charge of this project. Yeah, no, you you totally nailed it. I mean, from what um, you know, one of the one of the most fun things to do with Disney movies, especially in Pixar, as well as kind of you know research the backstories and learn a little bit more about the tidbits that went into really any movie. But um, you're totally right, though. With Pixar, they um, were really big on allowing their employees to sort of rise through the ranks and kind of earn their time to be a director. And like you said, usually there was multiple, at least two or three directors that were heading a film, but. Like you said, he was an outsider. He was brought in, um, you know, based on some uh, some networking and the fact that he knew, you know, one of the guys at Pixar. So it was, I think, it was a big risk in a lot of ways, and obviously, like we mentioned, it certainly paid off. So I'm I'm glad they took it. Yeah, it was only his second directorial effort. He had been working with The Simpsons in the '90s and uh, directed The Iron Giant, which was largely considered a flop, even though it's a very very good movie. 
And Uh, I was going to ask you about that because I know that we're sort of from the same generation. And for me, I remember the Iron Giant being amazing. (laughs) That was one of my, one of the films I loved when we were growing up. And when I kind of, you know, read a little bit about his history and stuff and and read that, you know, technically it was considered a bomb, which I guess in, you know, movie terminology, which you probably know know a bit more about it than I do, but I guess that it like had to, you know, significantly lose a lot more money than it made. And I guess it wasn't even close. So it's kind of a bummer, but I remember liking that movie. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that movie. We've actually talked about it on Cinescope. Um, just quick glancing on Wikipedia, its budget was seventy to eighty million dollars. It only walked away with thirty-one million. So, yeah, uh, this bummer. was was largely an effort on Pixar's part, trusting Brad Bird because of an old school friendship, really. Um, yeah. And Brad Bird got a, a late start in his directing life. He was over 40 years old when he directed this 45 or or so when he directed the Incredibles only 42 when he directed the Iron Giant. So again, lots of gambles being made, but I think if you ask a lot of people from our generation, maybe even a little bit older, the Incredibles is the movie that a lot of people point to as a favorite Pixar film. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly, like I said, crossed so many borders in terms of what they had done before. And if, and especially if you only look at the movies that were, you know, Pixar based and not necessarily Disney, but with Pixar, so many of their, um, their main characters and the whole themes of their movies are really based around either inanimate objects or animals or bugs. And it's just, this was such a different one because it was their, their first one that utilized, you know, humans as the main characters. And that was just something completely different entirely. So it was, it was it was very unique to what they did, and and Radbird took a lot of risks and kind of kind of I think scared a lot of the Pixar team off with with how intense he was going to be about how perfect everything was. And I guess that you know back in the studios they would always joke all the time because he was such a hustler for this and a stickler because he wanted everything absolutely as he was imagining it. And so he worked him really hard, but. Um, you know, and that being said, they kind of poked fun at him here and there. And I guess there are some hidden things inside the movie where they make fun of him a little bit because he, he really, he really had him work incredibly long hours and everything. But, you know, like we said, it was, it was different from anything they had done, but certainly something that, that paid off in dividends. Well, do you remember your first time watching the movie? Did you catch it in theaters? I don't think I did. I actually, I kind of remembered, um, you know, I remember a lot of like the Disney, especially the Disney first and just general first movies in theaters, but this one didn't come to mind as far as me going to watch in the theaters. I think it was more so the context about thinking that this was sort of a reflection of the usual Disney movies that we were, we were used to because this was, you know, again, a lot of, um, the characters were all humans and that's kind of more of a reflection of what Disney typically did. So I think this was kind of like a really good marriage of what Disney was and kind of what it was going to become with, with Pixar at its core. I also didn't catch the movie in the theaters, uh, when I was a kid, as I mentioned, I think I maybe saw it on DVD a year or two later. Um, yeah. I mean, I was 12 when this released. I didn't get the chance to go to the theater, go to the movies anytime I wanted. It was a a family thing, if anything. Um, Totally. And even then, I wasn't super into superheroes as a kid. You have to put yourself in the mindset of 2004, 2005, really the Mm -hmm. only superhero films we'd gotten at that point. We'd gotten the first couple X-Men movies, and we had gotten the first couple of Spider-Man movies. And that was really the extent of it. And I didn't watch the cartoons on Saturday mornings. It just wasn't something I was super interested in. I didn't read comics or anything like that. I was just more interested in general pop cartoons. 
And so this was sort of a departure, even in my interest as a kid. But from the moment I saw it, I've always been a big fan. And uh, in some ways, I do think it's my favorite of the Pixar anthology. Maybe not always number one. It sort of depends on my mood because there are some of the there's the streak in like 08, 09, 10 that mm-hmm. just blow my mind. But uh, it's so different from everything else. Even now, even several Pixar films later, The Incredibles stands out as something completely unique. It's for one, it's violent. People die, <laughs> but it also right. addresses really mature issues like infidelity in marriage. And uh, still, it does all of that while being insanely fun and insanely rewatchable. And uh, I'm still as affected watching it tonight as I was back when I was a kid. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think that I think that the movie totally has has legs, and it can just it can go you know from you know being watched and kind of how we thought about it as like you mentioned, kind of being twelve, thirteen, and being around that age of like middle school going into high school and witnessing the movie and taking away from it what you would, and then watching it you know as we are now in in adulthood and really realizing some of the some of the really serious topics that come up like you mentioned and you know things about marriage and things about family life and kind of what goes into all that so it you know it totally is one of those films that is changing constantly you know as how how we're viewing it and what we're taking away from it over time what parts of the story uh stand out to you are there any like specific story beats or even just like cinematography and stuff like that yeah it's a great question i think that um, and, you know, like yourself, I definitely rewatched it before we were, um, to come on the podcast here today, but I think that what I love so much about the story, and especially after reading a little bit into the insight on kind of how the director, how Brad kind of pulled the story together, but he was this perfect mix of, you know, the, the people that we weren't in that he was a huge comic book fan and a huge like superhero buff and something that I wasn't into myself either, but he was like half of that person. And then half of the other story, which is kind of the part that I most relate to is the whole backstory and kind of secondary story of the family, which some people could kind of argue that is the core story about how this family is living together and how the kids are growing up and how they're kind of forced into hiding a little bit and, and the tension, and the strain that puts on all the relationships in the family. So I think that, you know, the, the part of them being superheroes and stuff is obviously flashy and amazing and something that, the movie, you know, could not survive or have been as successful without. But I really love everything that's going on kind of behind the scenes and, and what's going on that eventually makes them, you know, a stronger, a stronger family and a stronger superhero individually. I've got to say that I love the sort of 50s, 60s spy aesthetic. Uh, Brad has shown in his filmography that he's a big fan of that sort of 50s, 60s time period. Iron Giant was set in the 50s. Tomorrowland has some aspects that it take place in the 60s with the the World's Fair. And this one, it doesn't give us a specific year, I don't think, but it very uh, comfortably sits in that time period. And it's got this sort of James Bond-esque style to it in terms of the technology and the visual style. And it's got that comic bookiness to it at times. And totally the music, right? Yeah, totally <laughs> the music. And we'll, we'll definitely have more to say about that later. At least I will. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it it just so firmly sits into that that comfortable 50s, 60s, groovy, I almost want to say, uh, style. And it, it just really pops off the screen. It's so colorful. Um, 
And then the story itself, the setup is just fantastic where you have these superheroes in their heyday. It's it's sort of like a, a Marvel New York City setting where you have mm-hmm. multiple superheroes stationed in the same city. You've got Elastigirl communicating with Mr. Incredible, communicating with Frozone. And even at the wedding, there's several other superheroes in attendance. So it's like <laughs> a community and they all take turns having their own adventures saving people in the city so it's cool that they have that that metroville is sort of like a hub in the same way that marvel is in new york city and in other cities like in dc uh but it sort of addresses the problem that people had with the avengers or especially man of steel in which the superheroes in the course of their duties cause intense destruction and this movie holds them responsible and says you know at what cost are we going to have you saving our lives? We would rather have our city intact, deal with a little bit of petty crime, and you go into retirement so we don't have to worry about you causing destruction or saving us when we don't want to be saved or whatever it might be. And so now they're struggling to live as normal people. That is such a cool, unique setup and not typical, obviously, of superhero films nowadays. You you get superheroes learning to be superheroes, and you get that in this movie, but these start as superheroes, then have to revert to civilian lifestyle, and then try to go back to being superheroes. So it's it's that weird sort of twist. Yeah, no, I think it's a really great point, because like you said, in a lot of the superhero movies and, and all of the Marvel movies that we're used to today, and by the way, such a such a weird foreshadowing, I think that, uh, you know, Disney obviously now owns Marvel, and we're pumping out all these Marvel movies, which we're all, you know, reliving, getting to love again. But, um, but yeah, I think that it is funny, because in that typical superhero type movie fashion, we, we aren't seeing until much later in the movie when there's kind of that climax of like, oh, no, the, the citizens are, you know, rallying against the superheroes, and they're the bad guys now and but like you said it it starts out that way and it only takes one kind of quick little scene or two in the beginning to kind of realize what's going on and then we immediately have these feelings of kind of like sadness and like and pitting a little bit for them because you you hate seeing him so bummed he's just Mr. Incredible Bob is just so sad for the whole first like third of the movie and you just you totally feel for him even though we have no idea what that would be like I've got to say I love the little interview snippets that we get at the start of the film in how they give us so much of these characters without doing too much. Uh, like Bob, yeah, that was great. Bob is headstrong and uh, eager to do his job, but also he seems to almost want a little bit of peace and quiet. And then we see later when he gets that peace and quiet, he's restless. And mm-hmm. likewise, Helen, Elastigirl, is, she, she says, what, retire? Settle down? What? Why would I do that? I'm at the top of my game. Why am I going to leave saving <laughs> the world to the men? Of course not. I'm not going to do that. But then when that situation is forced upon her, she adapts to family life really well. And Frozone is Frozone. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a whole lot to oh, gosh. Him, but he He's just a, a fun character. And uh, he he also, we get, we get a lot of that personality in those opening interviews. So really cool start to the film before we get into even the, the opening title. And then that that first sort of chase sequence, if you want to call it that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you make such a good point with like with how the characters are so how they're represented and how they kind of because, you know, essentially you have this this whole, you know, box of goodies that you could have picked from in terms of superhero powers and what they were going to do. And I guess the way that that Brad and all of them decided kind of 
what their strengths and essentially weaknesses were going to be was based off who, who the characters sort of were internally. Like you mentioned, Elastigirl is the mom and how mothers and, and wives are constantly stretching in a million directions to, you know, to meet the needs of their family and their children. And, you know, how obviously how you know, Violet, you know, being the, the younger one and kind of the shy one is going through an awkward stage. She's really wanting to remain invisible and uh, lo and behold, her superpower is invisibility. So he, they totally just, like he's mentioned the writing in this film and, and how they cast the characters and stuff was just so, so brilliant. So talking about specific characters now, what, what are your thoughts on Bob and sort of his growth over the film? I, f- I feel like with, with Bob, there's so many different levels of relatability to him because especially like we mentioned how we can watch this movie over the years of our lives and kind of relate to it differently. And, and just in that respect, I feel like you slowly kind of relate to Bob in different ways as we get older as well, because, you know, essentially he's, like you say, he's on top of the world. He's, you know, this, this handsome superhero hunk and, and he saves the world and stuff. And then he settles down and gets a wife who he's, he loves a ton, obviously, and is so happy about, but then there's that, that little desire that's like nipping at him. That's like, I want to be who I was. And like you mentioned, when they're forced into kind of suburban life, I mean, he is just so sad and depressed behind that desk of his and his boss obviously couldn't be more of a jerk, you know? And, (laughs) and so you just, I feel so bad for him. And I'm like, man, I, you know, I feel that way sometimes. Like I don't want to sit behind a desk and I, I want to be going out and, and doing things and enjoying my life and, and being kind of like, you know, back to that kid or that younger piece of you that you want to be so bad. So, I mean, I think, I think that his character for sure, in my opinion, has the most depth with that. Cause he's constantly struggling with this balance of wanting to be with his family and please his wife and, and do what he should do for them. But then at the same time, wanting to really be who he was and, and unleash that that superhero and that superpower inside of him. It's from one extreme to the other, really, where on on one side of the coin, he is running around, punching bad guys in the face, driving cool sports cars, getting the girl. And now he's sitting behind a desk that is too small for him and driving a car that is too small for him. He is confined <laughs> in every space he goes to. Uh, yeah, so, but just barely, right? Yeah. Like he, at any moment, he is going to unleash this craziness. And honestly, one of one of my favorite parts of the whole film by far, and we get to see that little kid on the trike who's in his little <laughs> neighborhood. And every time that Bob pulls into the driveway, every time at night, you know, if, if he was mad about something or slammed the door and he broke it, you know, you see the little kid and, you know, Bob just loses it in that one scene where the door breaks and he lifts up the car over his head and the, the little kid's staring at him and he pops his gum and he's just like stunned. And I mean, that's just, you know, that's just like a, you know, a mark to how, how on the edge, you know, Mr. Incredible is, and it's just wanting to break free from all these, like you said, confinements and he just can't. And so it's, it's so, it's so interesting. And, and by chance, just one of the cutest little funny tidbits in the film, I think. He, he just feels ignored and he's repressed and he projects this onto his family too, unfortunately, uh, in that argument he has with Helen after coming back from the fire they, they talk about Dash's quote graduation from fourth to fifth grade and how it's celebrating mm-hmm. mediocrity is a phrase he uses yeah. while he can't participate in sports something that he'd obviously be great in because of the the perception of people on superheroes and how they're being forced into isolation or not isolation but mm-hmm. uh, maybe emotional isolation if you want to consider it that way and so to get a taste of those glory days, he masquerades with Frozone, uh, d- does the smallest bit of hero work, listens to a police scanner for crying out loud. <laughs> but that- <laughs> And that's, 
That's such a cool part too. It just is. like him and, and the relationship of him and Frozone, just letting them be who they are a little bit and letting them get into a little bit of trouble, but not going as far as to maybe hopefully not blowing their cover. So that's just, that's, that's just a cool relationship between the two of them. It, well, it's a testament to their motivations as well. Bob, I think wants to use his powers and stretch those muscles, but I think he also has the compulsion to do good. Like if he wanted to just use his muscles and he could go do what he does later in the film and just work out in train yards. But uh, instead he's using the abilities he still has to help people even though he shouldn't. And so I I think that's a a good taste of his motivations. This opportunity on no man is sand gives him a real opportunity to truly flex his muscles and a chance to feel appreciated for his real non-insurance related skills. (laughs) And (laughs) the problem comes from his character when he hides what he's doing from his wife. And uh, it's funny when you think about it, if he had told her, I think there's a chance she might've been okay with it because you have to consider this job. It was on an isolated Island and it was an opportunity for maybe her to join in and stretch her own muscles if she wanted to. Uh, it, 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 it's not out in public per se. Uh, now, if that had happened, we might've had, a, well, we would have had a very different movie and things might not have gone right. as well, but still, I, I just think that was an interesting thing to consider that if he had just been open with her too, things might've turned out for the positive from the get go. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's kind of one of those constant themes you're talking about and sort of the real struggles of your relationship and just everyone's relationships in general and that you you want to be able to be yourself and do things you want to do but then at the same time, you know, he wants nothing more than to you know, please his wife and, and make and create the, you know, the best family that he possibly can. And, and sometimes, you know, the little, the little white lie will start out for what it is and sort of be a white lie, but he was just enjoying himself way too much. And, and feeling again, like, you know, his home life and his personal life, both th- things were going so well, right. Cause he got to go over to the, to the Island and do what he wanted to do. And then he'd come home and because he was doing the superhero work, he was working out. And, and honestly that, like that time passing scene in the train yard is like one of my favorite scenes. I think, I think my favorite scene of the movie, cause I just love those edits when they make a long time pass with the, and maybe there's a technical term, maybe you can help me on this, but <laughs> those, those scenes are the best. And so you can see that he's, he's working out and, and coincidentally things are great with his wife. And so there's just, there's no reason to think he should stop because everything seems to be right on track and, and going well. And he's able to be himself and earn some money for his family. And you know, there's, there's no reason to quit. So he eventually gets in too deep because of it but you know his motives are there and like you mentioned it's total it's a total breaking bad thing right like (laughs) he has the right motivation he wants to get his family some money and be happy at the same time but you know what he's doing by by lying and hiding it is where it comes to bite him right he creates trust issues between him and helen exactly and then after he reunites with his family at the the end of the film he he's thought he'd lost them uh but at this point he understands where his priorities should have been from the beginning, not in reliving his youth, but rather in enjoying his family. Uh, there's that scene when they first get to Metroville to stop the the, the giant robot, the Omnidroid. And he says, you know, yeah. I'm not strong enough. Um, he knows yeah. that he doesn't work alone anymore. In contrast with what he said at the start of the film to Buddy, he says, I work alone. Mm-hmm. Well, not anymore. Uh, and he can't stand the thought of being without the people he loves. And so he, he tries to push them aside 
so he can do this on his own so that the, that risk is not there. But then they pose the risk of losing him. So uh, th- that's sort of one of the themes that I'll talk on later is teamwork. But uh, mm-hmm. he has come to a completely different place by the end of the film from wanting to work alone to appreciating his family for who they are and for being people that he loves and uh, being happy with that. Right. And for, you know, essentially realizing that, you know, he, he was made a better dad and and husband and, and eventually superhero when he, you know, sort of let them in on what he was doing and, you know, let them come and help. And everyone was, was made better because of it and made stronger. So, you know, letting him kind of let his guard down and let those walls down for them to, to be able to help him and say, Hey, you can, you can do it alone maybe, but what if you had us help and, you know, look how much more better and successful we are and we work together. So yeah, it's, I think that's definitely one of the the running themes throughout for sure. Now, what about Helen? What are your thoughts on her? I mean, I think, I think she's my favorite character in the way of, I love, you know, being, being someone who's recently married and, and a wife. Um, I love relating to her. I think she's hilarious. And I think Holly Hunter out of all of the, out of all of the voice, um, the voice actors, she was by far the, the one that I was most familiar with. I just love her, her attitude. I think she's just the perfect combination of this, you know, she's still, she's a mom and she's obviously a very good mom, but no matter what she does, you can just tell that she's just going to kick ass at it because that's what she did and she's so good at it. And so she just seems so, so strong. And like, I would totally admire her as somebody that you could definitely look up to as somebody who's a wife and raising a family and everything. But, um, I think she's great. And I think that she's, I think she's just as torn internally as her husband and that she not so much, maybe that she wants to do the superhero activities again, even though I secretly think she definitely does, but even in the way that she probably hates seeing him so bummed out and so sad and she knows something's wrong, but you know, her motivation as a mother is just to give her kids the best possible life that they can. And she doesn't want to subject them to all of the hate that the heroes at that time, like you mentioned, were receiving. So I, I totally admire her and feel like she, you know, she was definitely doing the right thing the entire way through, just trying to figure out how she could balance this, um, you know, providing this good life for her family, but then also being able to be happy and for her husband to be happy. Her trust issues in Bob illustrate her desire to hold their marriage together and just what being kept in the dark does to that that bond. And I, I love that scene where she's visiting Edna and she's crying because she realizes that he's not where he says he was and he's been lying mm-hmm. for a couple of months. And Edna says, listen, you're Elastigirl. And he's Mr. Incredible. Go to him, tell him that you remember who he is and show him, remind him who you are. And so she goes with the intent of slapping some sense into him, really beating some sense into him. And uh, so so she she's active in trying to hold this marriage together, but she also prioritizes her children, even on the island. So like with the missiles, uh, she... Mm-hmm. In, in a way, sacrifices herself. She becomes a human airbag to cushion the blow. Um, and she also, once they reach the island itself, warns them. She says, listen, uh, this isn't Saturday morning cartoon special where the bad guys are going <laughs> to monologue. Well, the bad guys do monologue, it turns out. But they're not going to exercise yes. <laughs> restraint just because you're kids. And so she... she yeah, it gets real fast. It, it gets real, real fast. Right. right? <laughs> you guys could die. So let's, uh, you know, don't don't be afraid to exercise your strengths, right? So she's pushing them too. Right. And uh, 
I love seeing her and Bob working together once they they get back together uh, on the island and you, you see the way they team up and use their abilities in complementary ways. And the same way once they get to Metroville uh, and they're all working together as a family, it's such a cool scene having these these family members who all have like powers, uh, well, very different powers, really. And are using them in ways that complement each other and build off of each other, and uh, they're they're being themselves, and they're displaying how well they team up and fit with each other and love each other. They they really are a great family, especially by the end of the film when they've they've overcome those trust issues and overcome their desire to hide the truth because they realize it's not worth it to hide the truth. It's it's more worth it to keep everybody involved and included so that there aren't any secrets. Yep, totally. And like you said, sort of, you know, there's so many different themes that are running throughout this film. And and one of them certainly, you know, a case could be made for the one that, you know, might be one of the largest ones is just being, being yourself and like being okay with being who you are and, and in your own skin and whether you're a superhero, whether you're not or whatever you're good at. And like you said, the ultimate sort of, you know, it's so satisfying when they all, like you said, come together and use their powers and work together. And that's absolutely when they're at their best is when they're just being themselves and, and who they are and who they are meant to be. Next we have Dash. Uh, and you mentioned this earlier where the the powers of each of these characters sort of reflect their personality. So the mom is flexible and the dad is expected in the family to be strong. So he's strong. And uh, then you've got Violet who's uh, in going, probably going through puberty. She's a teenager. She's shy. Mm-hmm. And so she she has lower self-confidence, so she's invisible. And then Dash is a 10-year-old boy, so he's hyperactive and fast. And so we have these mirrored personalities in their powers. And that makes Dash in particular such a, a fun character because he's he's antsy, he's thirsty to use his powers in meaningful ways, but just like his father, he feels suppressed. And so he acts out as a way to cope because he has no other outlet. He can't do sports because he's competitive and he can't uh, earlier in the film uh, resign himself to cheapening his abilities in order to keep his abilities hidden. Right. And I, I think you just, out of all the characters, I think I just feel for him the most because he's so young. He's youngest in the family. So he doesn't fully grasp or understand like why they have to hide themselves and why can't I just be me? And you can tell he gets it a little bit, but, but even though he's, you know, he's, kind of, you know, a crazy little kid and he's, you know, putting thumbtacks on the teacher's chair and, and not getting caught on video even because he's so fast. So you want to be like, oh man, he's just a, you know, he's just a bratty little kid. But even, even with that, I just, I totally still fear, feel for him. And I feel so sad that he's, you know, forced to hide his little self because he, you know, has been told by his parents and they've grown up and that, yes, we know that you're special, but you can't be special. And I think that, you know, in noting that, that, that brings up my absolute favorite and and largest I think running theme throughout the film is that you you know the characters talk so often about if everybody's special then nobody is special and he just can't you know he can't grasp that and I think his you know his exact quote from his mom when you know when they're in the car and you know they're talking about that and 
um, he says, Elastigirl says in the car, everyone is special dash. And he goes, that's just another way of saying no mm-hmm. one is. And I think it's the second time we kind of get that reference because, you know, in the very beginning, you you see Buddy who, you know, looks up to Mr. Incredible and he wants so badly to be, you know, on his same page and be as special as he is. And so they use the word special so many times, but it means so many different things to different people. And in the way that, you know, what it means to Dash is that he's like, he's basically being forced to hide who he is and he just doesn't understand why. And so I feel so sad for him. On the island, seeing him sort of figuring out the limits of his powers and having fun doing it. uh, It's so joyful seeing him running on water, (laughs) not knowing he could run on water and then looking down and just giggling because like, oh, that's (laughs) really cool. I could do that. And then the the first time he throws a punch, (laughs) the first time he throws a punch, he's like, wait, can I try this? Ooh, that felt good. Dodge, dodge, try that again. Oh, yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> he's such a yeah, yeah, he's getting to unleash and he's having fun. And and a little like t- random tidbit that I read is that, you know, the, the boy who voiced Dash, you know, now, you know, a much older boy, he um, wanted to make his, his lines and everything as realistic as he possibly could. So the director, Brad Bird, actually had him run around and do laps <laughs> before he came in to read lines. So he was actually out of breath. And I mean, it totally shows because he, he sounds great the whole time and he actually sounds like he's tired but he's loving every second of it. And then we have Violet, who we already talked about. Her power of invisibility shows her lack of self-confidence. She hides herself from her crush. She dresses in dark colors. She covers her face with her hair. She's just not open with Mm -hmm. herself. And she expresses the desire to be normal, almost like her powers are a curse. Um, At the the dinner table, she says, you know, you tell us to be normal, but we're not normal. I wish we were, but we're not. So. She she doesn't have this opportunity to exercise her powers, especially not in the same way that Dash does. Speed is one thing, but turning invisible and creating force fields is a little bit more conspicuous when you're doing it among everybody yeah. else, especially when you can't move as fast as Dash does. Uh, so that first time Helen asks her to put a force field around the plane after being told all her life to not do stuff like that on even smaller scales, she struggles because she's never had that opportunity before. And so she doubts what she's capable of and fails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I think it's just, again, a reflection of, like you mentioned, her sort of lack of self-confidence and her, you know, her polar opposite-ness of her brother and that he's just, he's dying, desiring so badly to unleash these powers. But whereas her, she's like, when she's called on to do it, she just has, she doubts herself, doesn't know if she can do it. And um, I think one of the coolest parts with her character is kind of seeing her come to realize that, you know, she can do it and gain a little bit of confidence just slowly, slowly throughout the movie. And, you know, at that very sort of not quite at the end of the movie, but more so in the middle when they're kind of confined to that cave when when Helen goes off to find Bob and see where he is and she tells him to stay put, but, you know, kind of brace yourselves and be ready. She um, pushes her hair back for the first time and it's it's when she's having a moment with her mom right before she leaves and she kind of tucks her hair back behind her ear and it's the first time it's out of her face and then if you notice for the rest of the movie, her hair is just mm-hmm. out of her face. It's like she, that was her bridge crossing. She is now confident or at least feels like she could be confident and it's just a, a tiny little thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people saw and stuff too but I just I loved seeing it being like yeah that was that was when she kind of had her her coming to moment there and her her growing up so well I love that when they first reach the island after crashing the plane uh and she's sitting in the cave by herself and she's experimenting with putting a force field around the fire and around the smoke above the fire and even then she's not truly successful Mm -hmm. she's not successful until it comes time to protect dash 
in that moment where Dash is about to get shot. She jumps in front of him and all of a sudden, boom, force field. And it's sustained and it is fully <laughs> corporal. Or, and it, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. And it's because she, in instinct, protected her brother. And her mother even said that earlier in the film. When it comes time to do it, you're going to know what to do. And she was right. Uh, she, mm-hmm. she, her, her powers came to full fruition when it was time to protect somebody she cared about. Yep. And, and like you mentioned, I mean, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Incredible or Elastigirl might've, you know, grown up with being able to use their powers. They kind of, kind of grew with them or grew into them, but with Dash and Violet, they obviously have been forced to hide them forever. So they really don't know what to do with them, but, but you're right. You know, she, when the, when the real time comes and, and real lives and her family and stuff is on the line, she knows exactly what to do because it's just in her. And, you know, she puts the force filled up and, and even Dash is like, how are you doing this? And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, whatever you're doing, don't stop, you know? So they're still figuring out and they're still learning, you know, what their true ability and their, the true, like, you know, lengths and heights of their abilities. And so it's, it's really cool to see them, you know, sort of kind of growing in front of our eyes, you know, during. And at the end, she's gained the confidence to not feel the need to hide uh, with her hair or with her powers. Um, So it's almost ironic in the sense that her powers are more developed than ever, but she doesn't feel the need to use them to disguise herself or hide herself from anybody. So she's wearing brighter colors, her hair is tied back again. Yeah. And even Tony, uh, she technically asks him out because she's so confident with herself and with who she is now. Uh, he's the one who stumbles over his words and she's the one who says, you know, I like movies. I'll buy the popcorn Friday. It is. And so she, it's so yeah. different from the girl who uh, turns invisible when he glances in her direction at the start of the film and then sort of giggles over the fact that he looked at her. <laughs> I know. And it is so sweet because like you said, there's, there's so many different ages where we watch this movie and, maybe you and I were just kind of outside of outside of that age range that she's in, but for, for young girls and, and even boys, you know, who are watching the film and kind of seeing how she gains that confidence and how things start to go her way when she just has confidence in herself and, and who she is. And it's just, it's a cute little, you know, moral and, you know, people may be, you know, younger kids may be watching that and saying, yeah, I could have confidence too. So lots of little fun things to learn for, for all ages in this film. Other characters, well, we've got the other big one, Syndrome. Uh, (laughs) Syndrome, what do you have to say about him? Oh, gosh. I just, you know, he he is under the impression, you know, that we, the first thing that we talked about a little bit ago, but he's, he's under the impression that, you know, he wants to be on the level of the Incredibles. He wants to be special and special to him is having these, these crazy powers. But then, slowly have the film. And even in the beginning, he calls to it. He's like, well, you know, I, I may not have powers, but I'm smart. And so when you, we kind of see the second run, when Mr. Incredible and him run into each other and he's got the boots on the little rocket boots that he's built, you know, he's like, where did you get those? And he's like, I built them, you know? So he, his, you know, his special ability is obviously the fact that he's smart. And for him being smart and being intelligent and being, you know, somebody who obviously can invent super cool things like rocket boots. He, he doesn't see that as like special enough. So in a way, you know, obviously he's the villain. So of course, you know, nobody's rooting for him and I certainly wasn't rooting for him, but, but in a way it's kind of, it's kind of sad because I feel like what was special about him, you know, is something that he never saw as a cool special ability. So he ends up taking what he thinks is you know, is not anything to write home about. Oh, I'm intelligent. I can make weapons and stuff. And, and he makes weapons with it. And that's, what's so sad is that he's, you know, the, the powers, having the power is one thing, but him doing something bad with it is 
the direction that he goes and that's you know eventually what leads to his demise but um but yeah it's 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 sad because I suppose at the same time you know if Mr. Incredible were to you know have taken him under his wing a little bit you know maybe maybe things wouldn't would have changed maybe he wouldn't have been syndrome yeah I sympathize a little bit with him uh especially if if Mr. Incredible hadn't been going through such an immediately stressful time that that fateful night uh, where he was getting married mm-hmm. and then he was getting sued and then he was forced into retirement. Uh, it was just bad timing for Buddy to try and force himself into this partnership. Uh, but, you know, despite Buddy's smarts and self-made powers, he's more about attention even in those er- early scenes, I think mm-hmm. I think he's more about attention than in genuinely helping people. He wants to be there not to help people, but to be with Mister Incredible, and that that's that's his issue is that he's not he, he he's invading on Mister Incredible's space rather than trying to actually help. I think um, he wants an audience, and he's right. willing to do whatever it takes to show people that he's special, even if it means later in the film killing people and creating yeah. a disaster in order to save people from it. Right. And, and that calls back to the whole thing we talked about with teamwork and everything. And, and yeah, you're right. He, he's just kind of more so forcing himself and wanting the spotlight for all these incorrect reasons. But in reality, you know, maybe if he had been like, Hey, like I want to learn from you and I want to work with you or be on your team, you know, then obviously things could have gone a bit different, but instead, you know, he's, he's out to destroy and to do bad things because it's going to give him attention. His performance in Metroville as he introduces himself reveals everything, honestly, uh, that he doesn't care about actual heroism. Like he he stops the truck midair and then I'm syndrome and he tosses it behind him and there's an explosion because he didn't look where he was tossing it. So for all he knows, he might have just killed 10 people uh, just carelessly tossing this behind him. And it's just him putting on a show and he... He, he just his his mind is not in the right place. And I don't know if he's genuinely trying to be a hero and just doesn't know how to do it appropriately because he didn't have that influence for Mr. Incredible or if he mm-hmm. really is only about getting that attention and improving how he has the capability to do these things because of things that he invented rather than some sort of supernatural gifts. Right. And, you know, he even goes to the lengths of, you know, not really caring about the the life of his poor, beautiful assistant who, you know, in at one point, you know, Mr. Incredible, you know, takes her and is, you know, going to say, hey, I'm going to crush her if you don't let me out of this restraint. And he goes, go ahead. And then he's like, oh, I, I knew he wasn't going to hurt you. It's fine. But that just, you know, goes to show you how, you know, how awful and that he doesn't doesn't care about any other life other than the one that, you know, that he's living and that he wants to be in the spotlight and be seen as a hero. But in, you know, obviously in reality, everything that he's doing would have been seen very negatively by the public had he lived to see kind of what was to happen. But yeah, just, you know, the, the classic storyline of, of too much power and too much intelligence and, and too much money. I don't know where <laughs> he got all that money, but I don't know. I don't know what he uh, invested in earlier, but, um, on a, on a side note, I think that the little weapons that he invented the little, the little bag of tricks he had were really cool. And I was watching it and I was thinking those were such interesting little things like the little, uh, the little thing that flies off of his arm and it goes into the water to go track down, like basically a, a, you know, a geo tracker for Mr. Incredible's body and how it comes back up. And I'm like, that was, I feel like a lot of their, the tech in the movie was really advanced for the time frame. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if he really had just cool. used his smarts to actually do good things and he could have actually done good things, but he kind of wasted it on this revenge exactly. story basically. 
um, resenting superheroes as a kid. So, uh, yeah. The last couple characters we haven't mentioned really. We've got Frozone, who not a whole lot of growth, but he's so quotable. He's got a fun attitude. It's nice that he's a, a genuine friend to Bob through their their isolation and separation from public eye. Uh, and it's nice to see that you know he's fond of the glory days too, but he's a little bit more aware and cautious of the risk involved than Bob is. Right. And it sounds like he has um, quite the demanding <laughs> wife as well from that one tiny scene where we don't, we don't even see her face. We just know that she's she has not taken nothing from nobody. So you know maybe that maybe that leads to it too. But no, I I, I totally agree. I think that he you know, maybe he is, you know, happy in his life and realizes, okay, we can't relive the glory days. It's fine. I'm, I'm good with who I am. But I think in general, his character, like you said, just lends itself so well to the whole comedic aspect of this movie. And, and I know that Brad, you know, upon working with or hearing with, um, you know, Samuel L. Jackson for the first time was like, this is who I have to cast because he has the best yeah. voice for this character. And like, that's it. Like he, he's the only one that can be Frozone. And thankfully he's coming in for the sequel and stuff again. But I mean, he's just absolutely perfect with this character and there's just so many quotable lines with him. So he, he really, he really adds just enough to it. And it, it wouldn't be the same. I like that despite his comedy and despite his caution, the second there's real danger in the city, he doesn't hesitate to suit up once he finds it <laughs> and help out because he, like Bob, as yeah. mentioned earlier, feels compelled to help. And that that's a great part of his character is his desire to do the right thing. Yeah. And, and every time they're risking, you know, the relocation again and they're risking outing themselves and going through the whole process again. But like you said, their desire to do good is you know, so deeply rooted in them that they can't help it when there's trouble. They got to go out and they got to fix it and they got to save people. And, you know, that's, I think that's kind of what they're alluding to is the mark of a real hero. It's just somebody that wants to do good, whether you have superpowers or not. And then we've got Edna Mode. <laughs> yes, we're here. We're here. <laughs> Voiced by Brad Bird himself. So fantastically. She is also quotable. <laughs> Brad Bird is hysterical. She is such a fun character. And I'm excited and interested to see what her role in the next film is going to be. I don't know if it might be like some sort of weapons development or if she's just going to be sort of on the side or maybe she, I, I don't know what she's going to do, but I think it's interesting and exciting to know that she's going to be coming back after her involvement in this film. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been any cooler in general that the director voiced her because, you know, they they went through, I guess, so many voices and they just never found that right one. He's like, screw it. I'm doing it. Like, I'm going to be I'm going to be her. And I mean, I can't imagine her being anybody else. And I don't think I ever would have would have thought that she was voiced by a male in a million years. I mean, even listening to it again last night, I'm like, there is this really him? Like, he just he does so amazing. I can't believe that voice acting was not his <laughs> primary job. I just she's she is fantastic and and the scenes all the scenes in the movie and, and really i guess there's there's really two main ones but the two main scenes with her in the movie where first you know bob goes back and revisits her for the first time and just from her calling out initially you know when he's sort of uh buzzing her in at the open gate right there and she looks you know looks through the camera and sees him and she's like oh my gosh you've gotten fat i mean that just starts off the whole thing of how funny and honest and open she is and you know who you're gonna get with her character just by taking that shot at bob initially and in his in his weight gain <laughs> so right off the bat she's she's hilarious and just does not disappoint and i i love both the scenes where each of the the different incredibles mr and mrs come back and interact with her for for a good few minutes at a time and i mean those are those 
those are totally two of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. I just realized that there is one more character that we can at least briefly mention, uh, Mirage. Do you have anything to say about Mirage? Because she does have yeah. a, a little bit of a nice arc in this film. She does. I think that, again, she's, you know, she on that kind of good versus evil thing, which obviously is at the root of a lot of superhero-based movies, um, you know, she's, she's seen as that sort of, like you said, mirage. She's a mirage in the way that she's fooling Bob initially into thinking that, you know, he's going off on this amazing voyage to help, you know, some company do some, some real good in the world and to help them, you know, test their weapons and things like that. And, you know, he doesn't really know what he's in for, but he just knows that he's doing good because she has led him to believe that he is. And so essentially, you know, she is a mirage for him. And, and so at first, you know, she's, she's on that side of things, but then when things start turning and she's realizing that that syndrome is, is getting, you know, very mean and is, is, you know, putting his, him and his family at danger and even eventually throwing her into danger. She, she quickly flips because at the core of who she is, you know, it's somebody who, who knows a little bit of right from wrong when it comes down to it. And that, you know, innocent people, you know, she doesn't want innocent people to get hurt. And even though their whole plan, you know, is to, is to foil Bob and the Incredibles in some way, she just can't let it happen. And so, you know, you, you really, um, you know, if you didn't like her before you, you definitely do by the end of the movie because she is now on the incredible side and makes everybody. Yeah. She says she's attracted to power. Um, and so it's interesting that she's attracted to maybe not romantically attracted, but attracted to syndrome because he's the one who holds all the cards at the start of the film. Um, but when right. he is so willing to sort of sacrifice her, even if he's bluffing to uh, Bob, who mm-hmm. is in a desperate situation, there's no way he could have predicted exactly how Bob was going to behave. And so he very well might have taken Mirage's life. Um, but she tells him right after that, you know, value, valuing life is not weakness. And this touches on a theme, uh, but she's, yes. she says, valuing life is not weakness. Because Bob saved me, because Bob did not kill me, because Bob is so upset at the loss of his family does not mm-hmm. mean he's a weaker person for it. And then she also says, disregarding it is not strength. And so she says she's attracted to power in seeing Syndrome so flippant on the, the, the lives of other people, including on her own. He no longer has, has the power in her eyes. And so she is attracted to true strength, which is in Bob at that moment. And so she uh, draws to him and begins to help him out and the family. So I, I like that flip and that sort of that, that key moment between her and Syndrome where she reveals what her motivations are and why it's so believable that she would change sides the way she does. Right. And I mean, Syndrome obviously is so focused on, you know, what he's doing. Obviously, he doesn't catch that she, you know, she is now going to basically be a total, you know, alias with Bob and and help them out. And eventually she does, you know, there is a a point at which she presses the button and releases him. And so she's essential to their success, ultimately. But, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't have noticed that or or cared or anything because he's too busy, you know, doing what he needs to do or what he thinks needs to be done. But you're right. I think that she's though a small character in terms of probably lines and and appearances in the film, she, she has a big point in it as kind of this outsider. That's not, you know, not syndrome and not that, you know, money hungry and power hungry, I guess is a better word, um, side of the coin, but then not, you know, on the incredible side where she has these special abilities. She's in a sense, the most normal out of all of them. And, and I think that, you know, it's cool to see that, 
even even the civilian, the common civilian with no powers or no you know superhero strength and stuff, it ultimately chooses to be on the side of the Incredibles and the side of the ultimate good. Okay, so moving on from characters, we finally have reached music and talking about Mr. Giacchino's fantastic <laughs> score. Uh, what do you have to say about this? Are there any highlight moments or tracks or anything like that? Yeah, I think that all, I mean, really all films since we, you know, began when I began watching Disney films in in the late 80s and all the way up through the 90s. I mean, every time we watched a Disney movie, I bought the soundtrack and listened to it over and over. And I think that with um, with Michael, his his first soundtrack that really like really, really spoke to me was with Up. And obviously he won awards for that. So, of course, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But in this one, in getting to kind of reel this movie and listen to the soundtrack of this one again, I'm just I was so impressed. And this was, I guess, one of the only, I mean, this, this movie cleaned up at so many different awards shows and awards venues, but this was the only one that didn't just win an Academy Award for animation, but it also won Academy Award for sound editing. And I think that speaks a lot to, um, not only the people specifically working on sound editing, but the people who did the music and the soundtracks and the, the whole seven minute track at the end of the film, which is when the credits are running is called the end credits. And it's just such a good track. And I listened to it like twice in a row while I was just working <laughs> yesterday and I love it. But I think that, um, what we mentioned earlier in that, uh, Brad Bird really kind of had a lot of different pieces in the film that was a callback to the sort of fifties and sixties, and even seventies era of things. I think that my favorite, my favorite piece of, of music in the whole film is the entire um, soundtrack that's over that piece. I mentioned that I love when, when time is passing and he's lifting weights and getting mm-hmm. lifting trains, <laughs> and not just weights, he's lifting trains and getting stronger. And that whole soundtrack or that whole track mm-hmm. is called life's incredible again. And I love it because it's so reminiscent of like Frank Sinatra and has all these jazz undertones, which is a music that's super near to my heart. So, I mean, I, I just love the music in this and it's something that maybe a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought immediately. I'm like, Oh, I love the, I love the music of the Incredibles, but in listening to it again, I mean, it's, it's I wrote in my notes, uh, that it's very much a sort of John Barry, James Bond pastiche kind of things in the best of ways. Um, and I was reading just now that John Barry was actually the first choice to do the film score, uh, but he didn't want to he didn't want to mimic oh, wow. his earlier scores from like the James Bond films, for example. So Giacchino got the job and it's so jazzy. It's exciting. You know, there's even some moments where it feels kind of sexy. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of music. It's, it's very evocative totally. of the time and of the aesthetic of the film and of the time period. And it, it's successful in bringing that out in the film. Uh, th- there's even one tiny moment that I just want to mention where uh, Bob is singing his theme song when they get back from the fire as he comes into the kitchen and he grabs a piece of cake he is singing his theme song which is so funny um (laughs) it's probably just replaying in his head the entire time that he's doing anything whether it's like saving someone from a burning building or you know in his in his little desk when he was writing you know (laughs) writing people some notes on how to better their insurance i mean he just he's probably just humming that constantly so he's really he's really on a high at that point so no that's that's a good yeah so that's that's one of my favorite tracks is glory days which is sort of bob's theme uh we get that over that opening chase sequence Mm -hmm. life's incredible again is one of my favorites as well it's sort of like a in love with my wife and my life kind of theme (laughs) um We've got Kronos Unveiled, which is like this mysterious looming danger and the the tragedy of the the lost other superheroes at the same time. 
100 Mile Mm -hmm. Dash is possibly the most fun one aside from Glory Days and in credits uh, because it's just fun, fast paced marimba theme for Dash as he goes running through the jungle and across the island and across the water. And it's just it's it's playful and it's energetic at the same time. Uh, It's a great piece of music. I, I love 100 Mile Dash. Yeah, that, that is a good one. I just love, like you mentioned, in general, just having having the tracks, especially the ones that are you know longer in time. They so many of these because it's just like an up and a down, an up and a down. They go from being really slow and and being sort of like that like that jazzy notes, and they go really quickly when some action happens, and they go back down again. And it's just it's so cool how these kind of seamlessly weave all of those instruments and together. And it's just it's it's so interesting because you don't you don't totally hear it when you're in the movie, I think that goes for a lot of soundtracks probably. You don't really hear the music as much because it just fits so seamlessly with what's going on on the screen. When you pull back and just hear the music and then you can picture what's going on in the film, I feel like that's just such a testament to all the composers and everything because they just, they nail it every time. And, and you know, Michael Giacchino, especially, I just, I'm such a big fan. Yeah. I mean, in short, this is the score that put Giacchino on the map, I think. And I still think it's among his best. Uh, for me, it might even still be top three. And he's composed a lot of good scores. It, this one is just so steadfast and has a lot of staying power. And it's one that I always enjoy returning to. I agree. Now, totally. closing off. Uh, we've got our relevance and themes section. We've already hinted towards some of these, but uh, are there any, what, what's your biggest takeaway from this film? You're right. We did, we did hint on a little bit um, of what I'm going to speak about now, but I think that I just, it's worth re-mentioning again, because it's just, it just completely rings true for me, not only on like a personal level, but more even just on a, a level of what's going on in society. And that's just the whole consistent theme throughout of the idea of, if everyone's super and no one's super. And then mentioning that, you know, Dash is, is graduating from what was the fourth to the fifth grade and he's going to have a ceremony. And that's just like, you're celebrating mediocrity. And it's this constant balance. I feel like even in our, in our society today of like, you know, we want everyone to be winners and everyone to be the same and we're all equal. And I feel like that's just such a tough balance because I, because I personally believe that people that you know, people have a right to, to be able to shine. If they want to shine in something that they're really good at, we should celebrate it. And and that's okay. And you can be first and win a first place trophy, you know? And, and I think that that the movie was ahead of its time in that way, because I feel like it's even more so relevant now. And, and the whole idea of, of being, you know, super and special are kind of interchangeable in this movie. And that, you know, if every, if, everyone's special than no one's special. And that's also sad because I feel like, you know, everybody obviously is special and everyone has something that they're amazing at and they should celebrate and they should be themselves. But it's just, you know, society, especially nowadays can, can make it really hard. And I think that it was, it was a theme that was totally even more so before it's time. I I agree. And, you know, we, we already talked about the importance of family as well. You know, Bob is unhappy with his life despite spending it with his family. And, even with Lucius, who could be sort of extended family, he may not be able to openly use his powers, but he still has people he loves and should be happy with. Uh, and it takes him going out on his own and lying and hiding and even losing his family to realize what he had and what he lost. And it mm-hmm. makes him appreciate it all the more when they're finally reunited. And then in that same vein, there's the, the value yeah. of teamwork. And uh, again, we touched on this, but you know, in the city, 
He tries to go it alone again, and this time not to exclude his family, but to protect them because, quote, he's not strong enough to lose them again. Uh, and Helen points out that if they work together, he won't have to go through that again. So they, they work incredibly mm-hmm. well together. Uh, they, they use their powers in complementary ways. Uh, back on the island, they did this, and they emerge victorious because of it. And really, in a relatively short amount of time, too, it's not a long fight because they're so successful in combating this thing together. Right. And I completely agree in that the the other theme of this and the one that is so, I feel like that anyone can relate to and everyone does relate to in life is the whole theme of strength and, you know, that physical strength that Mr. Incredible has. And then him sort of, you know, losing his strength or being vulnerable to, to not having strength when it comes to the idea of if he were to lose his wife or his family and, and that being okay. And, and again, like you said, Mirage saying it's, it's not a, you know, you're not weak because you value life. And like, that's, and all of that and how we go through so many moments in life where we may not, you know, feel as strong and how that's, and how that's normal. And that no matter what, at the end of the day, your family and the people you love are the ones that surround you and the ones that will get you through that. And that, you know, even when you're feeling at your complete lowest and feeling like you, you can't do it, you don't have to do it alone. There's always somebody out there and, you know, especially your loved ones and your family and you've got to lean on them sometimes. And, and that's okay. It doesn't mean weakness. It just means that you are yeah, I think to have them. There's a different kind of strength in recognizing that you don't have all the strength. And that you don't have to tackle things alone. So. Yeah. And that's something he goes through, right? The ultimate, you know, that ultimate kind of test in that, you know, we are basically going to possibly die if we can't stop this robot and him sort of admitting, I don't know if I can be strong enough. And, you know, she's imagining, you know, strong enough as in, what do you mean? You Mr. Incredible. Of course you can, you can, you can stop it, but he's just meaning, I I don't know if I can be strong enough to, to do it on my own or to, to lose you again. And, Ultimately, they they need to work together to get it done. And Any other really sweet. takeaways? Um, you know, I think I think personally for me, um, the the impact and kind of like what this movie means to me so much is, and what I love so much about it is that it it truly kind of reflects the relationship that um, that I have like with my husband now. And that in, like I said, being married, I got married last year and just, we've been together for so many years. So we, you know, have been through a lot together, but I just love the ultimate bond between a husband and a wife and that are truly devoted to each other and love each other. And, and that knowing that no matter what you're going to go through some bumps in life, whether it's, you know, having kids or, you know, bank accounts and buying a house. You just, you go through so many things together, but the, the one thing that remained is that they were, they totally believe in each other and that they, they love each other. And I know that's all totally super sappy, but I think that it's really sweet because there's not a whole lot of husband and wife, um, relationships in a lot of Disney movies. It's a lot of, um, you know, obviously in the ones that are human, it's a lot of either parent and child, um, relationships or brothers and sisters, but this was a really sweet, um, relationship throughout the film of a husband and a wife. And that was by far one of my favorite. Very cool. Do you have any other sort of final thoughts on the film? Um, no, I think, I really think that was kind of my, um, 
my, my favorite one. And, and I'm just so, so excited for number two. Um, it comes out on June 15th, which is a day before my birthday. So I'm going to basically, or a day after my birthday. So I'm going to have nice. an extended birthday celebration and, and go out and see it. And I just love, I love the fact that, you know, as a lot of Disney and Pixar fans know they always throw John Ratzenberger somewhere in the film. And I remember I was going through the whole film yesterday again and thinking, where again does he come in? I can't remember. And that last part when the, the villain of the underminer comes out through that, with that big old old like screw that he comes out of the ground with and he's gonna um you know he's gonna obviously try to do something bad with it and they all just kind of look at each other and they already have their masks on and they're just and they're ready to go they're ready to go to action as soon as they've you know they've just defeated this robot but they're ready to go and they're gonna be fine and i just love that (laughs) and hearing the underminer come out of the ground and hearing john's voice i was like ah yes there he is Thank goodness. So I'm glad that he he made his appearance, albeit a bit late. But um, apparently with with number two, they're going to pick up exactly where they left off, exactly with the underminer, like literally where we left off the minute of the film. And I think that just makes number two all the more exciting and interesting. And, and I can't yeah, I kind of hope they that they it. just like immediately shut down the underminer without a fight. <laughs> I think that'd be really funny. Just like, yeah, we're, we're, this isn't really even an <laughs> issue. And then from there, they have their own separate issues uh we'll see but i'm excited either way i'm glad that it is immediately after the the, this film rather than being any sort of time jump i think Mm -hmm. it's just going to be a lot better seeing them continue their stories rather than jump forward and have completely different stories yeah, me too. And, you know, Disney has Disney and Pixar have a really good track record of of making sequels that were, you know, that were just as good, if not even some t- in some cases better than the first. And they uh, they being the director of the film and the writers and stuff said, we're not going to do this unless I know that we can do it just as good or better. We're, we're not going to put any effort in this until I know it can be better. And so they're going to be using so many efforts and so many ideas um, that I guess didn't get put into the original film and adding way more. And they seem to be very confident that people are going to love it. So even though this is the, the longest gap between the original and a sequel for Pixar, it just, it just beat out Finding Dory. Um, it's it's going to be a long time in between, but I think that I think that time might do it justice. But we'll I just have, have 100% faith in Brad Bird. Um, he, like I said at the start, he's m- one of my favorite directors. <laughs> I have not seen a film of his that I've not enjoyed immensely even. So I am very excited to see what he does with this and knowing that he wrote and directed and he waited 14 years to get it right. Um, uh, I have no doubt that this is going to be a fantastic movie. So. uh. Well, Hey, then (laughs) your faith has given me, me faith. So I'm, I'm good. I'm I'm ready. I know I'll be on June 15th. With that, that is the end of the official 75th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Amanda. Thank you for having me. You, I love doing one of my favorite things, which is which is talking Disney, and and I really appreciate appreciate you contact inviting me for the on, show. So thank you. Facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes, rating, reviewing, maybe even subscribing to the show, helping to give us a boost in visibility on that platform. You can also email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And you can use that to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love, think you could talk about it for a little bit. Let me know because I'd love to have you on the show. Now, Amanda, where can people find you? 
Well, I, uh, as you, as you can tell, I definitely, like I mentioned, love talking Disney and, and love talking anything Disney. And if you're a similar fanatic like me, I have a blog that I write for fun over at halfgirlhalfmouse.com. And I'm uh, just about to release an article or a blog post on the history yeah. of the Dole Whip. So you can check okay. that out there. Um, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And don't forget, I have another podcast called An American Workplace. You can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com if you're a fan of NBC's The Office. Show notes and all contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Once again, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I had a really good time. Thank you again. Anyone thinking of co-hosting, <laughs> awesome. I would do it because it was Thank a blast. you everyone Thank you. for listening to episode 75. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope and we'll be back next week with episode 76. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.